As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Eternal Father, you've spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate word. We pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this evening. We've been considering a series through the book of Ruth in the evening, and we've come to uh, the last part of Ruth, chapter 1, uh, in verse 19. Uh, through the end of the chapter will really be our, uh, our uh, sermon text for this evening, but just to remind us of the, the context, I want to start our reading back on uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 6, and we'll read through the end of the chapter from there. Um, our text is on page 283 of most of our pew Bibles. Uh, Ruth is between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. So Ruth chapter 1, beginning our reading at verse 6, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister has gone back to her people and to her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, this is a book that at its very beginning is, comes to us in a context of sin. We kind of talked about the time of the judges ruling um, as sort of setting the context for the book. And we've dealt already in this book quite a bit with the consequences of sin that we see happening in the nation and in this particular family. Um, God's people were facing the consequences of their sin, their national covenant breaking. Uh, the famine is an example of that. What was happening at the time of the judges was an example of that. So we saw that on a national level, the consequences of sin. We thought about the consequences of sin as it faced this particular family, um, how they rejected the promises of God in the promised land, went to sojourn elsewhere, um, and suffered for the sake of their sins, uh, that we should see Elimelech's death in Moab as um, a punishment for the sin of abandoning God's promises and his promised land to sojourn in the land of their enemies, Uh, that his two sons married foreign wives, which they weren't supposed to do, and that they also died childless in Moab. And all of this was part of that old covenant consequences of sin, and we thought a lot about that. And the book has a lot to teach about the consequences of sin and how the Lord works recovery from the consequences of our sin. Um, I think this, this end of chapter one also reminds us something else about sin, and that's the characteristic of sin, that sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful, and I think we don't want to just think about the consequences of sin. We want to think about this characteristic of sin um, as we see uh, Naomi facing that reality, that sin is deceitful. Um, One of the things that our Lord did all the way back in Genesis 4 is to personify sin. Uh, When Cain was angry that his offering was not accepted and that Abel's offering had been accepted, the Lord told him to think about his sin as a predator. Um, He told Cain in in Genesis 4-7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Um, And part of that that call to rule over it, uh, to what the New Testament often calls putting it to death or mortifying uh, that sin in our lives, um, one of the ways we have to contend with sin is like any other enemy. You need to know how it works. Um, In John Owen's famous book on the mortification of sin, that's one of the things he says. If you want to try to eliminate sin in your life, one of the things you need to do is figure out how the enemy attacks you. Uh, preferably you need to do that when you're not under attack, when you're having times, but when you think about it and you meditate, like, why do I make these mistakes? Why do these things keep happening to me in my life? How is sin working in my life? Uh, We need to know how sin works. And one of the things I think we learn in this passage in particular is the fact that sin is deceitful. Uh, Sin deceives us, and we need to know how our enemy works uh, so that we can confront it and destroy it in our own lives. Um, and we see how sin is working deceptively in the, li- in the life of Naomi, and that can teach us about something about how sin works in our lives as well. Uh, sin is deceitful, and I think in these short verses here at the end of chapter 1, we see that sin deceives us about our reality, sin deceives us about our responsibility, and sin deceives us about our recovery. And that's why we want to think about this this evening. Sin deceives us about our reality our responsibility, and our recovery. A sin deceives us about our reality. Um, we, we come to this part of the passage when Naomi has returned home. Uh, they've come back to Bethlehem, and she enters the town, and we're, we're told that when she comes home, the whole town is stirred. Uh, the whole town is buzzing, we could say, with, with this news of her 
returning. Um, and, you know, maybe if you know anything about small towns, right, any piece of news in a small town can just whip around. Um, I remember in college, my roommate was from a small town in Iowa, and we went home with him for the weekend, and I heard a bunch of the gossip of the town. I knew it was going on with people that I didn't know who they were, but I knew that some guy had wrecked his car because I heard it from three different people within a span of being there for six hours. Um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to live in a town like that where everyone would know your business. But that happens in small towns, right? News gets around, people know, and so people are buzzing around the town. Is this Naomi? Is this the same Naomi that left? I wonder where she's been. I wonder what's come of her, what, what's happened. And so that's what's going on. And she talks to the town. She talks to people about what's happened to her, and she reveals in what she says uh, how she sees her reality now. Um, how she sees her reality, and it's, it's a kind of sad picture. Uh, not just a kind of sad picture, it's a sad picture uh, that she paints of her own reality. Um, what does she say in verses 20 and 21? They say, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Uh, There's a footnote in our Bible, but you may remember that Naomi meant pleasantness. Um, And it's almost as if, you know, things are so bad in her life that she can't even stand to hear her name uh, because her name is a reminder of pleasantness and she doesn't feel like there's any pleasantness in her life. Uh, She doesn't want to be called that. She wants to be called Mara, uh, which is also, there's a footnote there, it just means bitter. Her reality has so much changed that she wants to be identified uh, with this difficulty that she faced. She's saying, my life has become bitterness. Uh, just call me that. That's my reality. Um, the bitterness that she has experienced, uh, so much so that it's become uh, her identity. That's how she sees her life characterized now. Um, I was reading a book on counseling recently, and the author said something interesting about the relationship between disappointment and anger and bitterness. Um, And he said, you can kind of follow this simple formula that disappointment plus time equals anger. If we're disappointed enough for long enough, we become angry. And then he said, and then if you take anger plus time, you'll get bitterness, Anger that goes on for long enough will become a kind of bitterness in the lives of God's people. Um, We're not told this specifically in these verses, but it wouldn't be too hard to believe that there is that connection going on in the life of Naomi, that she's faced so much disappointment for so long that she's become angry, and she's been angry for so long that she's become bitter about her circumstances and what's happened to her. Um, And her bitterness she attaches to the fact that she is someone who went away from the promised land full and has come back to the promised land empty, right? I think the fullness is obvious what she's referring to. I went away from Bethlehem full. I had a husband. I had two sons. I had hope for the future. And now I've returned without any of them. No husband, no sons, and therefore in the society at the time, no hope for the future, Um, this is the reality as she sees it. 
Um, and we see once again the problem that we kind of pointed out in the beginning of the chapter is that part of the problem of her reality is it's been reduced entirely to the worldly considerations of life. Uh, she's thinking solely in worldly terms about her reality. And that situation is not nothing, right? We don't want to minimize that in any way. It's a terrible thing uh, that she's experienced. It's a terrible loss that she's dealing with. No, in no way want to diminish the hardship and the loss that she's suffering. Uh, but it does really beg the question, did her family really go away so full uh, when they left Bethlehem? Uh, they left during a time of Israel's wickedness. They abandoned the promised land. Her husband had acted in ungodly and unbelieving ways, uh, turning his back on the promises that he'd been given, the inheritance that he'd had from the Lord uh, to go and sojourn in Moab. Um, he was ungodly and unbelieving. She had two sons that by the account were given were ungodly and unbelieving, disobeying God's commands, taking foreign wives. Um, and as a judgment on their sin, I think we see in chapter 1, they have no children in their marriages. Um, we might ask the question, was your family really that full? Or was your family not missing something important back then? We might also ask the question, has she really returned empty? I can't imagine what it was like for Ruth to hear this, right? I've, I've pledged myself to you. I've pledged myself to you. You said nothing to me in return, and now we get back to Bethlehem, and you tell everyone, it's so sad that I've come back completely empty. You know, what about me, right? Um, we're, not, we're not told anything about that, but she, was she really so full when she left? Is she really so empty when she comes back? Uh, what about Ruth? who's pledged to stay with her and to support her. Um, and ultimately, what about God? Right? Ruth had promised to go back with her to her people and to her God. And she does acknowledge in this passage that the Lord has returned her. Is she no longer without God? Is she really empty? Um, and I think we see all in, in all of this how sin can deceive us about our reality. Um, how sin works in deceitful ways to deceive us about where things stand and what life is really like. Uh, sin can operate to make bad situations look um, better than they really were. Uh, we had such a full family, uh, even though they didn't have such a full family. It's sort of like the Israelites who said, you know, we had it so good in Egypt. Why did we come out to the wilderness? Um, we page back to the beginning of Exodus when they were crying out to God for help um, under their harsh treatment, that iron furnace of slavery. But they were still managing able to say later, we had it so good back there. If only we could get back to that. Um, or the Christians in the book of Hebrews who said, you know, we did, life wasn't so hard when we were just practicing Judaism. Uh, maybe it would be easier for us to go back to that. Uh, sin can make bad situations look better than they really are. Um, sin can also make good situations look worse than they really are. Uh, the devil managed to tempt Adam and Eve, who were in a perfect paradise, uh, to do something else, that there was something better that they could find uh, by disobeying God's command. Um, sometimes sin deceives us by making the Christian life seem like a duty rather than a delight, um, as if we have to give up so much that would be so much better to serve God and to do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Um, and what sin does is deceives us about the state of our reality. 
And what we need is a reminder of the reality. Um, We need a reminder from God's Word of how things really are. Sin deceives us. Our hearts are deceitful. We can't always trust even how we view things. We need a view from outside of us to remind us of the truth. And what God's Word word always does for us is comes uh, directly to us and makes everything crystal clear. Um, If we're ever tempted to say, you know, I think things used to be a little better. God's Word comes and reminds us, no, you used to be miserable, hopeless, and helpless. Things weren't so good. No matter how difficult the crosses that we're called to bear are, things weren't so good without Him. Uh, Things weren't so good, right? When sin deceives us about our reality, God's Word and Spirit need to come and remind us of the truth. Um, Paul does that for... uh, Christians in Titus 3, when he reminds us of what we were and what God has made us. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Um, We need the reminder to lift our eyes above this world and to remind ourselves what is true for us in our God. Um, We can have sin deceive us about our reality and blind us to the truth that we have in God. And we need those consolations of God's word to remind us that the Lord is for us, that the Lord is with us, and that the Lord will give us all that we need. I often come back again and again to Psalm 94, verses 18 and 19. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When sin deceives us about the reality of our lives, we need God's word to speak to us once again of the consolations of the God who will never leave us or forsake us. Um, We need that help because sin not only deceives us about the state of our reality, but it also deceives us about who's responsible for our reality. Um, It deceives us about our responsibility in life. Um, It tells us, it lies to us about who and what is responsible for the reality. You know, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I left full and I came back empty. And who's responsible for bringing her to this point? Um, As she tells the story of her life to those who are buzzing around, uh, how does she tell the story? Uh, Who is the one who has done this to her? Uh, She says in verse 20, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Um, I am bitter and empty, and who has brought this bitterness and emptiness on me? Uh, It's the Lord who's done it. Uh, Two names she uses for God here. Uh, One is the Almighty, 
you know, Shaddai is how it is in Hebrew. We sometimes say the name El Shaddai. You Amy Grant fans know that. Um, El Shaddai, the name of God, God Almighty. That's what the L part means, God Almighty. Um, that's one of the words she uses, the Almighty God here. And when you talk about God being almighty or overshadowing, it really is highlighting the irresistible power of God. Um, when, when, Ab- when Abraham is, sees God revealed to him in Genesis 17, God comes to him and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Uh, that's emphasizing the overpowering, overshadowing power of God, the fact that he is irresistible in his might. That's what's being emphasized with that name. That's what she calls him, Almighty here. She also refers to him as the Lord uh, by his covenant name. And so what has this irresistible power of God done to her? Uh, He has dealt very bitterly with me. Um, If we wanted to, you know, sort of see the play on words that's going on here, we could say in English, one commentator said, she says, call me Mara for God has greatly marred me. Um, It's it's sort of a play on how God has dealt bitterly with her. Uh, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And then when she talks about the Lord, what has the Lord done to her? What has Yahweh done to her? The Lord brought me back empty. I went away full. He brought me back empty. And the Lord has testified against me. He's taken his seat as judge and made a ruling against me. Um, This is what God has done to me. If you want to know why I became empty and bitter, why this calamity has come, it's all because the Lord has been against me. Um, And and the sort of the hopelessness of how she says this is captured in in the name she uses. If the Almighty turns against you, what hope do you have? Um, If if he who is irresistible in his will decides to act against you, then then where is your hope? Uh, What can you do about it? Um, It seems almost become worse when she talks about the name of Yahweh, the covenant name of God that reminds us of his faithfulness. She said, he's turned on me. It was this Lord who was supposed to be my co- our covenant provider who has brought me back empty. It's the Lord who is supposed to be for us that has been against me. And you see how all of that is sort of highlighting the hopelessness of the situation. God has turned against me and what can I do about this? He's responsible for everything that's happened to me and what I've come to. Um, and again, you know, it would be easy to now launch into the critical part of the sermon where we criticize Naomi and her faithlessness and everything else. But if we're honest, we've struggled with these kinds of questions before. Maybe we haven't framed it quite this way, but we struggle sometimes with how things are and what things have come. And why does a good God allow this? Why does a good God allow what's happening to me in difficulty? And even when I embrace that truth that he always turns all things to the good of those who love him and are called to his service, we can still see the situations going on in our lives and say, I don't see how good can come from this. And sin can deceive us into thinking, yeah, you know, this is God's responsibility. How could God let this happen to the world? I was just reading a, an account of a, a terrible battle in World War II, the 2nd Ranger Battalion fighting after, after D-Day and fighting their way in and fighting to take this hill and having to weather all of these attacks. And by the end, there's only 22 Rangers who are capable of fighting on the hill. And someone who was there and saw the ferocity of the combat 
said, I, I can't believe there's a God because of the, the horrors of war I saw there. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which sin can deceive us into thinking the state of the world is God's responsibility. He's the one that's allowed it to come to this. Um, and again, what do we need the word of God to say to us? Who's responsible for the state of the world? Who's responsible for sin and the misery that sin brings in the world? It's not God's fault. It's our fault. It's mankind's fault. And we have to be careful about this. I don't want to mean to imply that every single thing you suffer in your life is you can tie it to some particular sin you've committed and that's why these calamities are coming upon you. That's bad theology and that leads to um, a hole you can't get out of. But we do ultimately recognize that there would be no, no sin and no misery in the world if there had been no fall of man. Um, that this was not the world that God made. This is the world we've made. Um, and I remember one of my pastors who grew, growing up probably speaking from this pulpit in Escondido saying, you know, there are times where we just want to shake our fist at Adam and say, what have you done to us? What have you brought on us that this is the world we live in? Um, but it's important that we don't let sin deceive us and say, God has brought this world to bear. Um, this is the world we have brought to bear. Uh, sin is our fault. This world is our fault. Um, and we need to understand that, not so we, just so we avoid blaspheming God, which is an important thing to avoid doing, um, but so also we realize what the real cause of this world is so that we can understand what the cure is. You know, there are people that look around and see the evil in the world and think, you know, maybe, maybe more education will help this. Or maybe we should have tougher laws and build bigger prisons. Maybe that will help all of this. Uh, but we know that's just dealing with the symptoms. That's not dealing with the cause. Uh, what is the cause? Uh, what is the cause? It's sin. And what is the cure for sin? Um, it's to turn to God in faith. It's not to blame God. It's to cry out to God as the only one who can help us. And that's what God wonderfully does to the world as we see it. He comes and brings the good news, which is the world is as bad as all that. Um, I, God was not responsible for making it as bad as all that. We've been responsible for making it as bad as all of that. But once we made it this bad, we can't do anything about it. And what God does is comes in his grace and his mercy and says, what you can't do for yourself, I will do for you. Um, because I love you, because I have mercy upon you, I'm going to come and actually deal with the problem. That really is what the coming of Jesus Christ is. It's, it's dealing with the cause of the sin and misery in the world. Jesus comes into the world to die for our sins, to take responsibility for our sins, dying on the cross. By his almighty power, he has triumphed over sin and death. And as our faithful covenant Lord will come again soon in glory to make all things new to root all sin and misery out of this world until he finds none of it and to make this a place wherein righteousness dwells. Um, that's the good news of what's coming in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to have that good news defeat this idea that somehow he's not doing his job or somehow this is his fault what's come in the world. Uh, it wasn't his fault, but he does come to fix it. 
He has fixed our souls in the Lord Jesus Christ if we've believed in him. And he will fix things body and soul when he comes again in glory. Uh, We can't let sin deceive us about who's responsible. And we see also in this passage, I think, that sin deceives us about our recovery. About whether there's any hope of things ever changing. Uh, Part of the sadness of Naomi's life is it seems to have lost any hope. Uh, This is just what she's been reduced to, a bitter, empty reality that God has brought this upon her. And because the Almighty Lord has brought this upon her, where's the hope for anything different? There doesn't seem to be any hope in her that anything will change, that anything will improve. This is just who she is. Um, And that's, that's a way sin can deceive us too, by telling us, you know, there's really no hope. You should just give up hope. Uh, There's nothing that can be done about the situation. Um, And what God's word also always comes and does is say, God is not against you. God is for you. And because God is for you, there's always hope. We can never say that we are hopeless and have no way out to the things that we face. We see in this passage that recovery has already begun by God's grace. Uh, The Lord has returned her to the promised land. The Lord is starting to roll back the sins of her family, call her back to himself. Uh, Three times in this passage, we see that she's returned to Bethlehem. Uh, She left in a famine, and she's come back to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Uh, The place calls out in hope. Um, It's the time of the barley harvest. There's food again in the land. She's returned to the promised land where God has set up laws that charge his people with taking care of those who have no one to take care of of them. Uh, We we saw in the first part of the chapter how it was all about returning, turning back, returning. That theme kept on again and again, and now we're told the Lord has returned her. Uh, The Lord has brought her back. She's been brought back to the promised land, back to the people who are charged with keeping watch over her at a time of harvest and plenty. Um, There's recovery already beginning, even though she can't see it yet. And even though she talks about having returned alone and empty, she hasn't returned alone. It's sort of interesting how Ruth is with her at the beginning of of our, our short little text here. The two of them traveled till they came to Bethlehem. And then when the town is stirred and people talk to her, Ruth drops completely out of the picture. Um, but she reappears. Right? The Holy Spirit brings her back into the story in verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. She hasn't returned alone. She's returned with Ruth. The Lord has brought her back and has raised up Ruth to, bring up, to be the means that he will use to bring about Naomi's recovery. Um, she'll bring a, the Lord will bring about Naomi's recovery and the recovery of her family through Ruth. Uh, the Lord will even work Israel's recovery through Ruth and through what he does in her life. Um, and this is a reminder to us that through Ruth not only comes Naomi's hope, but eventually will come King David, who is the hope of God's people, and through many generations from King David will come our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Everything in her situation is testifying to her there's no hope of recovery. 
And her, from her perspective, there's just no hope of my family recovering. And what is the Lord going to do as we go on through Ruth? What are we going to see in this chapter? The Lord will, rec- will, will bring her family to recovery. The Lord will bring the nation to recovery through the king he'll raise up. And through the Savior who's coming, he'll bring all of God's people and eventually the whole creation to recovery. This is a reminder to us never to believe sin's lie that there's no hope of recovery. Why is there always hope for God's people? Because we have a God who is almighty and a God who is a faithful covenant Lord who is good and his steadfast love and faithfulness endure forever. The Lord is able to do far beyond what we can ask or even fathom. Right? If you'd have said to Naomi, the, the, the Lord is going to save the world through your family, she would have said, I don't even think the Lord can save my family, much less the world. Um, but is anything too hard for God? He's able not only to bring her family back, but to bring this nation back, to bring the world back through the son who's coming. First King David, who will recover the nation, then King Jesus, who will come to save sinners. And to make all things new. Um, never forget the hope of recovery we have in our God. Who is able to do far more than what we think is possible. By the great power that is within him. Um, we need to remember that when we are feeling every inch of being empty and bitter. On account of our sin and the misery we find ourselves in. To remind us of the fullness and joy that are promised to us who believe in Jesus Christ. He is the hope of our recovery. Um, He has returned us to fellowship with the Almighty God who is with us and for us forever. Uh, Praise be to, to the Lord who is the way, the truth, and the life to all who call upon his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage that reminds us about the many ways that sin deceives us. And we pray that we would always look to your Son and to the clarity that he brings through his Spirit and the Word, testifying to us about his promises for us. We thank you for that wonderful promise of Scripture that you are for us and not against us, Um, and that if you are for us, who can be against us? Um, Lord, we know so often in the difficulties of our lives, it's hard to raise our eyes up to heaven and to see those spiritual realities. We just see how we are outwardly wasting away and we can lose hope and be deceived by sin. And so help us to raise our eyes again and be reminded that we might outwardly be wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed by your spirit. And so help us, Father, not to lose heart, but to find our hope in your son in whose name we pray. Amen.